Welcome to the Rich Tong Family Podcast. Well, here we are again. I hope the levels are good. I had a good time doing the last one. I'm 10 days off from my last time, but hopefully I can run through this a little quicker now that I've got all the levels set. Well, okay, so what happened on the Tong Family uh, system over the last uh, 10 days? We've got a couple of things, a lot about Git, something about olive oil, Zoom, American Express, Mars Rover, we've got to talk about that email and stolen credit cards and all kinds of other stuff. So stay tuned. Okay, well, I've been spending a lot of time playing around with Git these days, and i got to admit I did something just horrible. Um, one thing, if you're ever part of this, never force push to master, or main as they call it now. Um, what that does is it completely rewrites the GitHub history. Oh, by the way, if you want to skip this part because you're not a developer, I don't mind. But um, just to get into it for a second, uh, what I did was I tried to fix a bunch of accidental commits that were made to a main branch. And this happens because with the free version of Git, there's no protection of the main branch, so anyone can just push right into it and make a mistake. Now, usually it's not that hard to fix, and what I did was I just switched to main, or the, the new command is switch, not uh, checkout. Uh, and then I fetched everything, and then I just did a rebase. But the problem was I made a mistake and I was actually working on a two-day-old version of the main. So when I try to cut the bottom of it out with the git reset head tilde 3 and then a git push f, what I actually did was cut out basically two days of everyone else's work. Now, fortunately, the project isn't too busy. That's about six commits. So you're able to fix it um, basically by putting those commits back in and then you've got a brand new main. Um, so I think the big lessons are is that git push-f to main is really just a bad idea. If you ever think you need to do it, you don't really want to do it. Now I realize that it can leave more commits there, um, but trying to fix an error can, also, can actually cause more problems. The second thing is, uh, if you're doing anything serious, I guess you got to pay for it or be a nonprofit and get it for free, but you've got to protect that main branch because um, it's just too easy. Basically, with... Um, Eight characters, git space push, you can just destroy the whole thing and cause hours and hours and hours, not days of work. Now, if you do accidentally push, the right step in retrospect is never to just reverse those commits with a force push. What you should really do is do a diff, and the command is git diff head and then head say three, which to see what's changed. And then you basically restore from that previous thing. Now, git makes this pretty easy because with the new git restore command, you can do a git restore dash dash source equals, and then just said, say head hat three, which goes back, and then the name of the file. So you can basically get back all the files that are changed. Um, by the way, the way to figure out what actually has changed um, is uh, pretty easy as well. So when you figure out the files that are changed, uh, one of the easy ways to do it is to use something called git diff tool. I usually use git diff, which is just a textual, but a diff tool basically puts it into an editing tool. Uh, for instance, uh, you can say at sign dot dot at sign hat three, which basically means compare the current head, which is the abbreviation is at, and then uh, at hat three basically means go back three, and you can see what's wrong. So um, then you basically just have one reversion commit that basically get, fixes all those files up. Now you do end up with all those other things, um, but if you did make this mistake, then you gotta pay some penance. And what you basically have to do is figure out what commits were deleted, push them back into master. Now every pull request you have is gonna be out of date and not really be easy. 
So you've got to go back through every pull request that's outstanding and do a git rebase. Uh, and that's another reminder, don't let those pull requests pile up because the more pull requests that are there, the more change you have to make. Okay, well, um, that was a, okay, that was just a quick little uh, interlude on Git. I'm pretty exhausted right now, but I thought I'd just do a little bit more details on uh, how to fix things. And the fact is there are a lot of new commands. Um, Git 2.3, um, starting in July 2019, really did some great work. And I just want to go through some of it with you because basically everything that I knew about Git has changed thanks to this. And the first thing is that when you learn Git, the first thing you learn is to do a Git checkout main, basically check out the current branch. It turns out um, this is pretty inconvenient because what Git switch does, or Git checkout does, is that it actually pulls it. And then if you've got any files that are already there, I won't let you, won't let you do the switch. Um, this often happens when you make a change and realize you want to be on a different branch, and then you've got to do uh, git stashes and so forth. So what they did was they basically uh, fixed it. So now a git switch um, into your branch gets you directly into the branch without actually pulling any files. And then when you want to pull files, you just do a git restore dash dash source, and then the branch uh, like main.py. So why is this useful? This is great because now you can get individual files back from a different place. Uh, it's really convenient when you're splitting pull requests where you want different um, things in different places. Now, I just want to make one comment about how you deal with pull requests when you really want to split them. I have this problem that I tend to keep working and working, so my pull requests tend to be way too big and hard to understand. So suppose you have one gigantic Mongo branch and you want to commit them, split them into two pieces. Um, well, it's pretty easy if you want to do a linear, what's called a linear split. That means if you say have three commits uh, that are the latest and then you've, all the rest go into a different commit. The way it works is you switch to that Mongo branch and then you create a new branch. Um, you can do a git branch and then let's call it first branch and then you do a reset hard the head tilde three, and that basically moves it all the way back. Uh, at this point, um, you're in the situation where you've just gotten those three things. Now here's the trick. Wonderful command called git rebase dash dash onto main, first branch, and then the second branch. What this means is the first end uh, commits are on first branch and the second one's on the second. Now this is really wonderful because um, if you've got random commits everywhere, what you do is you use git rebase-i to move them so it looks exactly like that. At that point, your commits uh, are everywhere. And one of the things about people don't understand about git rebase is that you can actually move the commit points around just by deleting and editing. Now, final thing is, what if you forget what's in what branch? I do this all the time. The way you can figure this out is you do a git switch to some branch, and then you do a git log, and then here's the syntax is important. You do git log and then the current branch dot dot main. And this basically shows you the differences between the main and uh, your current branch. You can also do a git show dash dash name only, which basically shows what the commits are and shows you what files have changed. Uh, a lot of times when you do a git show, you just see the commits. You don't know what, what actual files are that are changed. So git show takes care of that. And then lastly, you can just do that git rebase and then you're done. Um, by the way, I know this is a little complicated to hear on a podcast. You can look at tongfamily.com and look at the actual text for help.
Okay, now to on, on to the fun stuff. Um, you know, in this COVID, COVID time, we've been working a lot um, and getting a lot of great food. And one of the best things that we've done is just tried olive oils from around the world. It may seem strange, but actually it's not, um, it's not that easy to get great olive oils because the store-bought stuff really just isn't that good. So if you go to bestoliveoils.com, which is this nice site, um, you're actually refer, uh, looking at the winners of the New York Olive Oil Competition. Now, I don't really know if um, this is a legit site or not. It does come up high in the posts, and we've tried it a little bit. In fact, over the last year, we've had a couple different ones. I'm going to slay the pronunciations here. But the Mandravano Nocerella was an olive oil that was a silver winner in 2019 and 2020. And it was pretty awesome. We also tried a Greek olive oil from PJ Cabos that was also a silver winner. Uh, and then we tried a uh, Fonti de Fonayo Grand Cru 2016, which is terrific. And the Spanish olive oil, Oro del Desierto Coupage, which is also great. But this year, we really wanted to try some different ones. Oh, by the way, the Dehesa de la Sabina was another Spanish olive oil. I gotta say, although Italy's known as the best olive oil place, there really are some great places in Spain, uh, Greece, and other places. So the question comes up, what to get for 2021? Well, again, I went to the New York Magazine, I went to a bunch of different places, there are a lot of different reviews. I'm not gonna cover them all, they're on Tong Family, but I just sort of highlight that uh, the, um, the big list was pretty exciting. And one of the things about olive oils is they can be bitter, they can be, uh, have herbalness. Uh, if you get an olive oil that was harvested early, you get more bitterness, which some people like. Um, but one of the things I'd recommend is uh, I made a wish list, which you can look on Amazon.com. Uh, and you can actually use that uh, to look at these olive oils that I'm recommending or looking at here. I'd also say that CamelCamelCamel.com, which, yes, that's a word, is another great place to look because you can actually set price drops. You actually download the wish list automatically and get the price drops. Um, I'll do more reviews of these things, but um, I went through laboriously uh, every one of the gold um, reviews on uh, the olive oil, best olive oil list, and then just cross-tabulated to see what was available on Amazon. It's by the way, pretty expensive. It's like $40 for 500 milliliters, but um, if you just get a few of them, it can be pretty exciting. So for instance, the... Uh, Francesco Baldi Ladimio um, is an early harvest, about $40 for 500 mil. You can look at the website for the Amazon link. Um, I also tried the Castello Cola Masari, which is uh, Tusca from Tuscany. It's supposed to be spi spicy and fruity, and that's $45. Bucks. Um, I tried the Alora Farms, which is a Greek olive oil, uh, which is a little bit different. It's got peppery flavor, and it's uh, $30 a liter, so quite a bargain. So anyway, um, check the website out. Uh, I had to say I had to get a French one because who wouldn't want something from Chateau d'Estubillon? Uh, I got the um, de Berger, um, which is pretty nice, uh, pretty expensive too, sort of fun. And then I also tried some other ones um, that you'll see in the site itself, but I'll report later back on what was great. Well, now on the Zoom. I mean, we were using Zoom so much. I just thought I'd mention there are different ways to use it, and I found some interesting tricks. So normally with Zoom, you get a single window. And you can, um, if you change it uh, to slide view mode, you can sort of see some people next to you. Um, I particularly like gallery mode for that. 
problem is you can't really see that many people. So here's some tricks. The first thing is uh, you can actually uh, go to Zoom preferences and turn on dual monitor mode. Now that thing is actually a, mil a little bit misnamed, but it really does is it just creates two windows. And so you get a main display window and you can put all the participants in a second window. Now, the reason for doing this is you get a lot more layout flexibility. So what I like to do is I like to put the top window in the top quarter of the screen and then change the member view to gallery and then just resize it so you can see the maximum number of people. Um, the maximum, by the way, is seven by seven. So you can actually see 49 people. Uh, the only frustrating thing is it doesn't work half screen. It's about 60% screen to see all those people. Um, half screen gives you basically seven by six or 42 people. The second thing I like to do is I'll open up the chat window and put it down below the main window. So at this point, you get a nice tile where you can see the main window, you can see the chat window, and then you can see all the people. And then the last thing to remember is um, Zoom is really smart about how it orders things. So it basically only puts in the first window the video, the real live video feeds of people actually working. So if you just set it for the first window, you're going to see the first 49 active video participants, which is great. Now, if you don't like the distraction of all those random humans who don't have their video on, you can actually go to Zoom, Settings, Video, and choose Hide and Non-Video Participants just to cut down on the clutter. So anyway, more tricks on Zoom. Now, uh, the next thing is a little more subtle. Um, I have a lot of ad blockers turned on and anti-tracking technology. In fact, I really recommend Ghostry on Safari or uBlock Origin uh, for Chrome or Firefox. And I oftentimes turn a VPN, I use NordVPN on, just to prevent all that ad blocking. The problem is that some sites really do not like these blockers. And so here's some notes on things that are really annoying. So for instance, on the American Express billing site, you can use chat, but um, it doesn't work at all with ad blocking. It doesn't work on Chrome, Firefox, or Safari. I found the way to get around this on Ghost uh, with Safari is you've got to whitelist the Amazon, American Express site with Ghostry Lite. Now the confusing thing here is the Mac changed the way that they do uh, blocking. So uh, ad blocking is actually a standalone application. And it's not in the browser. So you've got to go find the Ghostry Lite application and then turn it off. What are some other sites that are really a pain? Well, not surprisingly, Facebook is just filled with ad trackers and it's not really going to run if most ad blockers are in place. In fact, I really only read Facebook for a short time, and when I do on my phone, I just uh, turn off NordVPN and what I, what's on my system, which is Privacy Pro. I use Facebook and then turn it back on again. Uh, another one is that the Bank of America site really does not like to be accessed from VPNs. And so uh, they seem like they're blocking, particularly some of NordVPN's ports. And so when I have to use Bank of America, I turn that off. Now, that site does work with Ghostry and these other NR trackers, but it does seem to be a problem. So if you're having trouble with banking sites, it might be because the VPNs are blocked. Uh, lastly, um, I used to have a lot of trouble with Amazon. It didn't like NordVPN, but um, it seemed like it was on the blacklist, but it does seem to be working now. Finally, uh, with Zoom, uh, I do turn NordVPN off, mainly because you get all of these latency issues. Okay. Not on something really fun. Um, you know, Mars uh, is a wonderful place, I guess. I've never been there. But the Mars 2020 project uh, landed Perseverance. And in this world of pandemic, climate change, and fake news, it's hard to remember there are some good things in life. Now, um, 
The successful landing is a pretty amazing achievement, and I advise you to look at the video. It's in the, on the website, and you can watch them actually land uh, from 160 uh, kilometers up, over 100 miles, to a general touchdown in less than seven minutes. It's really quite remarkable. And of course, I just love the name Perseverance. It was actually, uh, the name was actually picked uh, based on uh, an essay contest. Uh, they got 28,000 essays from students, and Alex Mather, who was then a seventh grader, did an amazing job. Uh, and in the show notes is uh, his essay. But I just love how it starts. Curiosity, insight, spirit, opportunity. If you think about it, all of these names of past Mars rovers are qualities we possess as humans. Now, isn't that incredible? But I really like the second line, so i just read it to you. We are always curious and seek opportunity. We have the spirit and insight to explore moon, Mars, and beyond. But if rovers are to be the qualities of us as a race, we missed the most important thing, perseverance. We as humans evolved as creatures who could learn to adapt to any situation, no matter how harsh. We're a species of explorers, and we will meet many setbacks on the way to Mars. However, we can persevere. We, not as a nation, but as humans, will not give up. The human will will always persevere into the future. Isn't that incredible? Um, anyway, I look at NASA Live and watch the landing. Um, I have that listed, and you can actually look at photos, and you can actually hear the first um, uh, sounds from Mars, because apparently this is the first time we've ever had a mic there. Really, really inspiring, and perseverance is exactly what we need in these times. Okay, next issue. Um, you know, I uh, didn't realize it, but there's a huge movement and a big hat tip to GeekWire for turning me on to this. But there's something called Substack.com, and this basically lets you have paid newsletters. So uh, I, of course, created one with uh, nothing on it yet. But go to richt.substack.com, and you can join my newsletter. Uh, and I've got to create a clubhouse thing at the, same, at, at the same time, since everyone seems to be talking, and it's so fun to talk to myself. Okay, sort of a, a not-so-great note. Um, so, well, it's a really common hack, but uh, if you don't have the right protections, it's super easy to go to Google, search for something, and then end up on a scam website. And I'm so sorry, Derek, this happened to you. But um, let me just describe this hack and how what you can do to prevent it. And so what happens is if you get on a scam site, it'll throw up a pop-up box and it says, you've been hacked, call this number. And then they'll take, uh, I mean, steal your credit card number, have you go to download an application that will take control of your whole machine. Yikes. So uh, here's what you can do about it. The first thing is shut down everything immediately. Uh, you've got to do that right away. Uh, call your credit card companies, get new cards, and you've got to assume that they've hacked in and gotten all your data. So here's what to do next. Um, call your bank and cancel, as I said, um, and then you've got to re-image your computer. Now, I know that some people think that virus checking can work, but you never, just never know what's on there. Um, the good news is that with a Mac, that's just a single command. You basically hold some magic keys down, that's in the show notes, and then you're off into the races. Now, I do want to point out it's possible that the application they downloaded did install what's called a rootkit virus. This means that it actually survives and lives in firmware, and that even with an operating system reinstall, it's going to uh, still get you. Now, unfortunately, while Windows does have a rootkit searcher, there aren't any available on the Mac. So um, the best you can do is do a reinstall and pray that there's no Mac rootkits currently working. Now, after you do this, um, please, please install an antivirus program. 
There are a lot of paid programs um, that are pretty good. I use Avast and AVG, um, and they're pretty decent. Um, for years, um, they've been very silent, but lately they've added a lot of magware, so that's pretty annoying. So probably these days I'd say that uh, um, AVG is probably the better choice uh, than Avast for that reason. Now, um, it used to be that uh, Xfinity, uh, Comcast, had gave you Norton for free if you're a subscriber. But that was just canceled, that's, so that's no longer available. The last thing is you're going to have to rotate all your passwords. Now, I know most people just reuse their passwords, but I really, really recommend you get a password manager. I use 1Password um, to generate random ones, but you've got to start with email first, then banks and credit cards as rapidly as possible. Now, the last thing is you've just got to freeze your cards. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, if they have enough data, they can just create new credit cards under your name and suddenly you've got a mile, mile of debt and a lot of problems. Now, don't worry, your liability is low if you didn't actually create the card, but it's just such a hassle. So um, make sure you to freeze, uh, and you can just go to Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And make sure you type the word freeze. Um, they will try to upcharge you for all kinds of services, but the freeze stuff is free. That's no pun intended there. Uh, now, the last thing is um, uh, I highly recommend going to a website called I'veBeenPawned.com, which lets you see how many times your identity has been hacked, and you can sign up for email there. Now, I guess the final words are uh, just ignore all mail and pop-ups. They're really just evil. If something seems strange, it probably is. Don't trust anybody. If you're really going to have to call somebody like Apple, then go to their website and then look their number up there. Don't ever just type something in that something gives you. And remember, they're never going to ask you for details like credit cards, so just refuse. Uh, finally, if someone asks you um, uh, to uh, call a random number, just refuse. Just call the main number. And never believe in your caller ID. It can be faked. And it's pretty sad that once a month right now, I'm uh, having someone in the friends and family who are getting hacked. Okay, last two. We're going to go back into the past. As I said, um, when I run out of um, pace, posts, I just go backwards. And so I just want to talk a little bit about uh, Superhuman of X. And what this means is that Superhuman, which is an email program, is now worth hundreds of millions of dollars with just the idea that people don't want to use a mouse. They don't want to use it. They just want to use their keyboard. And it's just way faster. Now, I completely agree with that. And for those of, those of us who've used VI forever, uh, you know who you are. You just know it's so much faster typing. Um, now, there are some keyboard applications that are really fast. Um, but the most important thing is uh, just learning all the keyboard equivalents. It really is much faster. The main problem is that with most interfaces, they're what are known as modal. So you oftentimes have to press down four keys to get something to work. So for instance, the next tab key in Safari is Shift, Option, and Right Arrow. Kind of a pain. But you can download tools like Vimari, V-I-M-A-R-I, you can search for it, that basically can add to Safari and suddenly just Typing a W gets you to the next tab and accuse the previous tab. Uh, now, there's a great post on um, about the sublime of X uh, on growth analytics. The link is in the show notes. And it's a great post about all of these great tools that are like that, where they're super fun, they're freeware, and they make things easier. Um, he mentions three. Uh, one is Fman, which is a file finder. And explore. But personally, I think uh, if you're a real hacker, just use RG or FZF. They're much better and super fast. But I'll have to give FMAN a try. Then there's linear.app and cron.app. Um, and I've got to try those too. But the ones that I really swear by are Vimari for Safari 
and the equivalent uh, Vimium for Chrome. And the basic idea is you type the F and you can jump to any link uh, just by looking at it. It rewrites the web page. For instance, if you see a, a G somewhere, or you can type FG and it just goes to the G link. It also works just like VI. So if you type in GG, you get to the bottom. If you type capital G, you get to the top. Now, I know it sounds silly, but it really is much faster than uh, searching with a mouse. And then just like VI, if you type in I or Escape, uh, I get you into command entry mode, and then Escape gets you into that other mode. Now, one of the other commands that's super wonderful is uh, in Vim. It's called GX, and it means go to X, go to the network. Now, this is actually broken right now, but basically, um, if you set the uh, NetRW, which is the network package, to open, and you type in GX, you're going to get right to where you want to go. Now, uh, NetRW, by the way, originally meant NetRewrite. The idea was that when you're editing, you can just uh, write something over FTP or RCP. It shows you how uh, long ago uh, that was created. And now, the last silly aside, which I finally learned, is the difference between set and let in DI. Now, this is really for you hardcore DI hackers, but, you know, for instance, you can do things like set number or no number to get um, uh, the feature that shows line numbering. You can also say let ampersand number equals one, um, and it's all the same thing. And so the idea of set is it's sort of a baby form of let, and uh, let ampersand number equals one is exactly the same as set number. Um, now, the other thing is uh, there's a, something called a G colon. So a G colon variable, a let G colon variable means it's global. So um, it's just a way to know what's global and what's not. Okay, last thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, winter travel. Now, this is a little out of date, but um, for those of us uh, during the winter, uh, it was pretty hard to figure out how to do it. And so I, I got a couple of questions from uh, Brad and from... Uh, some other folks about what to do about winter and traveling with your Tesla. Well, the first thing to know is you really want to get real snow tires. Um, while, you know, while you can get roadside assistance if you're stuck, it's a pretty vast place out there, so you really want to be prepared. Now, with the Model 3 performance, which is very cool, those tires are not really meant for anything that's even close to freezing. Um, so fortunately from Tesla or Tire Rack, uh, which is what I use to buy tires, you can get an approved snow tire. Now the trick here is, is, is that if you have 20 inch rims, they have a stepped hub. Uh, and so you need a special uh, wheel to put onto it. Um, so the stock 18 inch wheels just won't fit. Uh, you need a wheel set that fits around it. Um, so uh, if you have that wheel set, I really recommend that you get uh, smaller rims because those 20 inches are pretty big and you probably want smaller rims so you get a little more flex. Uh, which you really need in the winter. So for instance, Tesla offers a winter snow package with 19-inch Geminis. They look nice. They're pretty expensive at $3,500, but it makes your car really stable. Um, if you're going to buy things aftermarket, I use the Pirelli Sadovace uh, Sada 03s, and you do need the special Tesla T0 uh, sound deadening version. Um, we actually got our uh, snow tires before the Geminis were available, so I actually got the Fast Wheels EV01 Plus, which is an 18-inch wheel set um, from the guys who run Tesla Owners Online. Um, there are, they have uh, wheel covers. They're pretty ugly, but um, they really do work well. Uh, they're about $1,200 for the wheel set from Evanex. What's the second thing you need? Well, I recognize, recommend snow shovel and a brush. Um, the uh, thing from Orient Tools, uh, 
you know, Amazon looks great. Uh, and then lastly, um, getting an inflator, flashlight, emergency beacon, mylar blanket, a spare tire repair kit, light hammers, and a jump-starting battery pack. Yeah, those are all required in, on the site or links to them all. Um, the final thing is getting covers for the real seat. You're going to get a lot of junk on there, so I really recommend getting a pet cover to stick uh, on the back so you don't get water everywhere. Now, when you plan your route, while you can use um, Tesla's internal routing feature, I do really recommend for a 12 or 15 hour trip using a better route planner. The, the reason for this is just more accurate. Now, to really make it work, you really need to look at the tuning parameters there. So, um, for instance, the Model 3P, uh, the nominal tuning parameter is 295 watt hours per mile at 65 miles per hour. And I've actually found that to be pretty high given our style of driving. Um, and uh, I normally set that at 265 because I tend to drive very cautiously. The second thing is that um, they do allow you to quote unquote be over the rated speed limit, I'm not saying anyone should speed, but I find that my setting at 103 to 107% of the speed limit works just perfectly. Now, the really nice thing about this is you can also monitor real world performance. So if you leave ABPR on your phone, you can see exactly what it's doing, um, and you can actually see the state of charge versus your actual. And then by that synchronization, you tell how well you're doing. And the last thing is, you really gotta have a bailout plan. Um, when you are planning, the, you, you know, for instance, the best thing to do is to drive down to 12% and then recharge up to 60 or 70. That's sort of the fastest for the battery. Um, but it's possible that the thing could be wrong. So you always gotta think about the alternative sites. Uh, by the way, the supercharger network is pretty good. And I've seen many cases where um, the chargers though are down. And so now with the new uh, Tesla firmware, you can actually see how many people are using it and how many uh, charges there are. Now, I mentioned this about charging strategy, but basically um, all lithium ion batteries have the property that they charge much faster between 10 and 50% than anywhere else. So what you really want to do is uh, manage to charge between 10 and 50%. Um, you can actually charge up to 80%. Um, uh, it works pretty well, but after 80%, it really, really moves the trickle. So if you study this a little bit, um, you know, I don't like to get down to 10%. It's pretty scary. So I normally set it to be down to 12%, and then I try to get it up to 60%. Um, the last thing is, um, the thing doesn't have much bias for the 250-watt chargers. But just so you know, um, these are marked in a better route planner, but the 250-watt chargers have this wonderful property that they, you get the full 250 watts no matter what anyone else is doing. The problem with the 250 kilowatt chargers is that they actually share with another stall. So if you roll in and say half the um, chargers are being used uh, and they're all being used at 150, you're, you're going to get no charge at all. And now a better route planner doesn't plan for that. So if you have an option, go to those 250 kilowatt chargers. Uh, so that node factor, node, um, load factor is really important. Now, the last thing is, uh, if you're taking a long trip and you're worried about COVID, it's not bad to have a camping mattress uh, stuck inside of, of the back. And the Model 3, for instance, is just huge. You can actually put a really nice camping mattress in the back. Um, now, you can spend, for instance, uh, with Tesmat, for $270, you can get a nice two-inch thick memory foam mattress, uh, and they're even fitted twin sheets for it. If you really want to go crazy, Dreamcase, which is a European company, sells for $658, a gigantic um, thing that's uh, also pretty comfortable. Um, I actually ended up just using a traditional mattress. So XPED, 
Uh, Mega Mat Duo 10 costs $349. It's not a special mattress. It is air inflatable, though, which means it takes up much less space. So uh, those are the things to think about there. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking. Uh, give me feedback at tomfamily.com and um, talk to you next time. Bye.